Good morning to you all, and may the Lord's grace and peace rest upon you on this Memorial Day weekend as we engage with worship this morning on the seventh Sunday of Easter. Now, next week will be the celebration of Pentecost as we reflect on the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives, uh, this gift given to the church, um, and through its power has moved and strengthened, uh, strengthened and sustained us as a community of faith both in times of consolation and in times of desolation, um, in the normal and the abnormal times um, that indeed we find ourselves in. So that's next week at Pentecost, uh, next Sunday, the 31st. This past Thursday on May 21st uh, was the Feast of the Ascension that was celebrated worldwide. Uh, this is a day that the church recognizes and reflects upon Jesus, uh, Jesus after hanging out uh, for about 40 days post-resurrection. Um, that he uh, sends into heaven and, and joins his Father in heaven. And like many in the world, Jesus is now working from home. You're welcome, church. So, um, uh, so the church in these 10 days, always 10 days between the Ascension, the Feast of the Ascension, and Pentecost, uh, again, where the receiving of the Holy Spirit, finds itself in a liminal space. So back then, the church was not quite ready or equipped to be the church, but it is asked to go deeper into love within the community uh, during this time of ambiguity, uncertainty, and waiting, okay? And I believe, I believe we also have an invitation looming for us as well to practice loving without the bodily presence of the resurrected Christ. May we as a church learn afresh, okay? The skill of loving God and uniting, uniting in community um, in this time of ambiguity, uncertainty, and waiting. So uh, I want to shift gears here a little bit. So all my life, I've been a devoted, committed, passionate follower of the Los Angeles Lakers, the NBA team, the NBA team Los Angeles Lakers, right? Magic, cream, so on and so forth. Why a Laker fan growing up in the cornfields of Iowa? Good question. Well, my dad was a devoted, committed follower of the Boston Celtics. Uh, loved Larry Bird. And so, I mean, what, what is an Enneagram 8 supposed to, to do? The need to be against my dad. <laughs> so I became a Laker fan. Showtime. All right. Uh, it's a great rivalry uh, in the 1980s to enter into. So when this uh, documentary, documentary, The Last Dance, came out uh, about the dominant team of the 90s, the Chicago Bulls, I wasn't so much interested being a Laker fan in awe. I wasn't interested until, that is, I began watching the first episode. This, this, this documentary is just so, so well done. Uh, all 10 episodes. Uh, the story shared, the behind-the-scenes footage the revealing of what was, the interviews uh, of what many called the greatest of all time, the GOAT, Michael Jordan. Now there's much debate on uh, Michael, Kobe, uh, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, on who is the greatest, who, is the, who was the strongest, who was the toughest, who, was, who is the most worthy of the honor and title, greatest of all time, who should be praised most for their accomplish, uh, accomplishments on and off the courts. Who deserves the glory? Who deserves the doxa? Uh, I won't share who it is I think uh, is worthy of this. I will, I will 
I'll let you decide uh, who deserves the honor and praise, this, this glory or this doxa. When I consider our passage, passage this morning, uh, read by Mary uh, on John 17, this glory, or the, in the Greek, the doxa, uh, is at the forefront of everything, okay? Uh, it's a funny word, a funny thing, this word of glory. It's not something that we use all too often. We rather use, you know, honor, praise, greatest, highest esteem. Uh, and the way to glory, to be on top, to be number one, as we have learned in the world is through hard work, competitiveness, um, dedication, grit, determination, things that we all learned from the Michael Jordan uh, uh, journey in The Last Dance. However, in our text, uh, we're, I think we're invited into a different understanding of what glory is from Jesus. An important thing to remember is, as we read the passage, uh, is the context, the context of this amazing prayer from Jesus, because context matters. This prayer was prayed on the night that he was betrayed, arrested, tried, denied, and sentenced to death. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds anything but anything like, uh, it sounds, this sounds like anything but glory, all right? Uh, so our text reads this way. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. And just pause right there, the hour. Uh, if you remember Jesus' first mir recorded miracle, the, uh, the wedding feast at Cana, uh, my hour has not yet come, Jesus says to his mother, Mary. And now the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him, all author uh, him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the, finishing the work you have uh, gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So in this, in this, uh, in this prayer, Jesus mentions the finishing or complete, completing his work that his Father had given him to do. And this will culminate, culminate on the cross. The cross is perhaps, it just as I consider the cross, is perhaps the opposite of glory, right? It's more about shame, vulnerability, uh, vulnerability isolation, being hung on a tree to die as, a, as an enemy of the state. This, to say the, the least, this work on the cross, um, unexpected to be sure. But the cross can represent something more for Jesus. It can represent complete identification with humanity. Okay, complete identification with humanity. So rather than understanding glory as being number one, triumph, success, uh, success strength, awards, acclamations, Christ's understanding of glory means servanthood, vulnerability, sacrifice suffering and loss. So that doesn't make sense, right? Um, it still doesn't make sense to many. It doesn't make sense to, uh, uh, to and in the world either, okay? Uh, this is not how glory is supposed to work. This is not how it's supposed to work. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So how is it that God can be glorified in these things? 
What we see in Jesus' rejection by the religious authorities, his suffering on the cross, and his death, which leads to resurrection, is that it asserts God's power over all things, victory over death, and God's ability and intention to open new possibilities for the world. Okay? I do believe that God has absolute sovereignty over humanity. But the ironic reality is that it is God who, in Jesus, enters into our mortal, vulnerable human condition. In Jesus, God endures unjust suffering and loss. Because death on the cross witnesses to human weakness and frailty. But resurrection witnesses to divine sovereignty. So what is revealed then in God's complete embrace of our weak, uh, what is revealed is that is God's complete embrace of our weakness out of uh, his love for us. Could it be that in Christ, God chooses to give up divine sovereignty and embrace empathy and identification and solidarity with his creation? And he does this out of love. So when we think of this sacrifice on the cross, the sacrifice on the cross, perhaps it's not supposed to be only thought of as a blood offering to an angry and upset righteous God, but the sacrifice of the divine right and power in order to communicate, uh, reveal God's limitless and life-giving love for his people. Now, I'm sure both views have weight, and both, but both ought to be considered, ought to be considered. The sacrifice, according to Jesus, is what glory is. True glory always has a cruciform, is, is always a cruciform glory. So, uh, so that's the first section of our text today. Jesus prays for himself, as it says in the heading, but Jesus prays for his disciples. Now, uh, so we turn uh, to what I envision as uh, one of the most sacred, holy, intimate moments that Jesus has with his, with his closest friend as he prays this prayer, okay? There are a couple of uh, times where Jesus speaks of knowing, okay? Uh, one in the first, the first section, uh, now this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then twice in this section, he says, they, now they know that uh, everything you have given me comes from you. They knew with certainty that I came from you. So each time this word, uh, gnosko, gnosko, uh, it's a Greek word, uh, and the usage in John's gospel has a strong emphasis in re, uh, uh, on the idea of relationship. Repeatedly throughout John's gospel, uh, it says to be in relationship with Jesus is to be in relationship with God, with his Father. It is an intimate, even mystical knowledge uh, that Jesus speaks of here. Uh, The intimate knowledge, which this intimate knowledge, which uh, relationship, this gnosko, which brings, uh, which brings eternal life. It comes by revelation not by reason. It is a gift. It is not an acquisition. So earlier, John in chapter 3 says to Nicodemus, he calls it being born from above, being born from above. 
So I think we need to be super, super careful in this text to not turn it into those who have the knowledge and those who don't have the knowledge. Uh, Jesus here is speaking and indeed praying about those who know him, not about those who do not know him, okay? As a dualistic understanding of the text would lend itself to. Because remember back in the first section of the prayer, in verse 2, it says, For you granted him, that's Jesus, authority over all people, that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, might this be an exclusive way or, a, or an inclusive text? I, those given, meaning those given to Jesus and those given to the world, is this an individual distinction, i.e. believers and non-believers, or may it be an internal distinction? Meaning that we all, everyone, we all fight our own worldly inclinations for greed, power, and glory. Our own doxa, that is. I love how one commentator says it. Um, Some interpreters find here a Gnostic-like attitude towards the world. Okay, the world meaning uh, just, yeah, the place we we find ourselves in. So it's this Gnostic-like attitude, the conviction that all matter is evil and that liberation comes through special knowledge, okay? So to to start this, some interpreters find a Gnostic-like attitude toward the world and the fostering of a dangerous elitism among Christians. But there need be no suggestion that God or Jesus has abandoned humanity in general or lost interest in the world's welfare. John 3.16 should lay such a thought to rest. Rather, the fourth gospel takes a sober position towards the church's situation in the world. Because maybe this morning, you need to simply be reminded that God has not lost interest in the welfare of the world, especially in the midst of this pandemic. May this be a reminder of the good news and serve as a gift to you on this day to spur you on, church. So as we continue uh, and actually begin to wrap up this morning, I want to turn to what, uh, what it is that, uh, exactly that Jesus prays for regarding his followers, which throughout the corridors of history is a prayer for us here today as well in this season that we find ourselves in. In verse 11, Jesus prays for protection. Jesus prays for protection. It's an intercessory prayer from his heart. He asks God, his Father, to protect his friends. I'm wondering, have you ever prayed a prayer that God didn't answer? Jesus may know exactly that feeling because Jesus prays for protection for his followers. In a small sample, Peter's crucified, Paul is beheaded, Stephen is stoned. Well, like most of us, I think prayers are often answered in ways we don't expect them to be. Um, And and, and I think this is Jesus' experience as well. Uh, if not protection from physical harm, may it be protection from worry, anxiety, fear, loneliness, etc. Jesus prays this same protection for you and I today because we're reminded in Romans 8, uh, verse 34, that Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who raised to life, is at the right hand of God 
and is what? It is also interceding for us. Present tense. Present tense. Jesus also prays that they would be one as they are one. Now remember, this is the end. This is the end for Jesus. Jesus is about to leave. He's not going to retire and go play baseball and then come back later. No, this is for good retirement, okay? He will be physically present with them no longer, no longer. So uh, how is it that they can continue to be one even though physically separated from the disciples, right? This, in a significant, significant way, leads us to Pentecost. They are separated yet still one, and that is one in the Spirit, one in the Spirit. In our time of shelter-in-place, quarantine, homebound, or shut, or, or shut in, may we rely on this same Spirit to experience this oneness that Jesus prays for, as we too are not physically present with one another. May there be a unity among us by the Spirit in this season as well. So Jesus prays specifically for protection and for oneness. I mean, just how powerful, uh, moving, and intimate this scene must have been. So I want, you, I want to invite you this morning um, to imagine with me for a moment that you are with them on this very night. You are with Jesus and his disciples on this very night. You are in the room. What do you see? What do you feel? What do you smell? What do you sense in this moment? What do you sense in your mind? What do you sense in your heart? Any noticings from your body? The disciples are receiving prayer, okay, and blessing. And you are in the room. So the question is, what are you hoping Jesus might pray for you? What is it that you are in need of today? What is it that you are in need of in this season? What do you need Jesus to pray for you about? Now, as followers of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, may we emulate Christ's example so at some point today, on this Sunday, it's the encouragement to reach out to someone and invite them uh, to share with you how you might be in prayer for them. And ask them to be in prayer for you about something. This could be someone from your family. This could be someone from your church family. Uh, this could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker. Um, so that's the encouragement today on Sunday to do this, to pick up the phone or text and invite that question regarding how you can pray for someone and how they might be in prayer for you. And then on Monday, do it again. And Tuesday, do it again. And Wednesday, do it again. 
and Thursday, do it again. And the day after that, do it again. The day after that, do it again. And 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 the day after that, do it again.